Pod Pals, and welcome back to Best Girl Grip. I'm your host, Nicole Davis, and this is the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. First off, I have COVID, and so if this intro sounds a bit more gravelly and nonsensical than usual, that will be why. I have been holed up in my bedroom for the past few days and desperately need to stretch my legs and my horizons, so that's where I'm at. Uh, I hope wherever you are, you're faring better and perhaps able to listen to this while out and about. My guest this week is Ruth Greenberg, an award-winning screenwriter and director whose directorial debut run, a short film starring Neve Algar from Censor, is currently showing on Short of the Week. The film was backed by Film 4 and BFI Network and was long-listed for a biffer in 2021. As a screenwriter, Ruth's prehistoric horror, The Origin, is in post-production with Escape Plan Productions, the company who made Saint Maud, and she's also working on a medieval horror with director Nora Fingscheidt of System Crasher and The Unforgivable Fame, and producer Philippa Sang at DSM. Ruth and I had a great chat about completing a PhD in screenwriting, getting an agent and what that relationship is like, how she prepared to direct Run and collaborated with director of photography and former podcast guest Molly Manning Walker to achieve the subjectivity and kineticism required of the story, what a writing day might look like for her, how she likes to situate herself in the setting or place of a story, and how she deals with rejection. I think there are some really vital thoughts that Ruth expresses on writing genre and writing in general, and not being hemmed in by how you ought to write. There are a few housekeeping notes before we get to the interview. The first of those is that there is mild discussion of violence against women in the context of Ruth's short film Run, and we mentioned the death of Sarah Everard. So if for whatever reason you don't feel comfortable listening to that, feel free to skip the episode or rejoin us around the 20 minute mark. The other thing to say in relation to that film is that it's on short of the week and to coincide with that launch, Ruth is raising money via Just Giving for Women's Trust, who provide mental health and support services to women affected by domestic abuse. I've linked to that page in the show notes, so if you'd like to donate, you can do so there. And I would obviously also recommend watching Ruth's very powerful short film. This was recorded via Zoom and there are occasional background noises, but otherwise, I hope you enjoy this conversation. This is episode 104 of Best Girl Grip. So I guess I'd like to start off with asking if you kind of recall a moment that you learned screenwriting was a career and that you wanted to do it. No, <laughs> um, I think, you know, I don't really know. I didn't know anything much about the film industry before I entered into it. it, it I think it all feels like this closed box and it's very hard to understand what any of it is. But I watched a lot of films and I read a lot of books when I was younger and I suppose somewhere I worked out that you could write films and mm. I wanted to make films and I understood what writing was. So I that that was kind of my my start. And I mean, I can remember having a go at screenplays when I was a teenager. I didn't sort of complete a full screenplay until after I finished my undergraduate degree. I did an English degree, an English literature degree. Okay. And then I did a, a master's in creative writing and I was the only screenwriter on that course. So... I'm very much like I haven't done the film school thing. I don't think I've ever had any kind of training in how to write a screenplay beyond reading mm. half of story and I think maybe Sid Field's book. And so I feel like one of the reasons that my work gets received well by the people who like it is because it's quite based on instinct and on having just watched lots and lots of films and mm. having a sort of feel for film language. But 
it's not sort of I haven't sort of analysed how to write a screenplay in the way that I think some people are trained to do. A feel for it as opposed to a formula, I guess. Well, that's interesting because I know you have a PhD in screenwriting. So if that wasn't about kind of the more kind of craft aspect, what was that on? You know, what did you do your PhD on? It was writing a screenplay, like it's a practice-based PhD. I'd I'd finished my master's, spent a few years just writing and waitering, and I did a bit of script reading in that time. But I actually found that doing jobs that weren't directly related to film helped me feel motivated to write. And then I had an opportunity to do a PhD. I met someone who was doing screenwriting PhDs, Mm. and it was quite a new thing. And I was initially not up for it because I thought, you know, this is just academic but they insisted that it was about professional development. And then it basically, it felt incredibly self-indulgent, but also amazing because I got to spend four years writing one script with the support of two supervisors, one of whom did know a lot about screenplays. The other one who was, this was at UEA, a guy called John Cook, who um, had helped to set up the creative writing department there. So he was more a specialist in novels and poetry, but was starting to get really into supporting screenwriters as well. Mm. And it was a bit like the first two years was a bit like just going through a, a very kind development experience um, where I'd turn up with a draft every six weeks and we'd talk about it and they'd sort of try and work out what it was that I was wanting to do. Mm. And, and then after that, I did... As the sort of second part of the PhD, I, I wrote a thesis about a subject related to the PhD, which for me, I wanted to write about representations of violent women in relationship to competition in popular cinema. So it it meant looking at the script through that lens, but it also meant doing a lot of kind of academic thinking about films that had influenced me and influenced the script. So I wrote about films like Alien and Terminator 2 and... and it yeah it was amazing it was basically four years just thinking about a very specialist subject while also being able to be really creative and the kind of practice of the PhD was the writing of the script Mm. and at the end of it I had this very developed screenplay which was The Competitors my western which was the thing that I then having been writing at that stage for you know over 10 years I'd never actually shown anything to anyone except for to get onto the PhD and I suppose during my master's and and I um, had never circulated anything in industry and I came out of that process with a script that I felt very confident about and really understood and it also the subject reflected through all the work I'd done before and actually the work I do now like I'm really Mm. interested in writing about women and violence and that kind of complexity within a sort of genre framework so it you know it was a sort of foundation for I suppose everything I do and and an exploration of everything I do in terms of my writing focus like I tend to be very focused on quite specific things I specialize I don't I'm not like a broad writer I want to circle back to um, the competitors and, and how you then went about getting that scene. But I'm interested in kind of what you said there in the PhD about it being such a supportive environment and obviously writing something within a framework where you get to kind of show it to people every few weeks and get their feedback. So what was it then like kind of writing outside of that PhD for the first time and maybe not having that infrastructure of support or having to kind of find support elsewhere? I didn't really have to deal with it because after the PhD, I had I had a couple 
well, about 18 months where I didn't do any writing because I just had a baby and then there was an illness in my family and I was I was had a kind of dual care role. And so at the end of that period, I was had felt like I'd created the script and I, it was just gathering dust under my bed not literally. Um, and, you know, I just needed to do something with it. So I started circulating it. I went to the London Screenwriters Festival. I think probably the best thing that came out of that for me was uh, I met a very good friend, Ed Cripps, who's a screenwriter. But I did also, I had, I pitched to a couple of people and sent the script to a couple of people and I had really positive feedback and also what was really interesting was even in the pitching process, I noticed people really engaging with my pitch in the way that they weren't engaging with some of the other writers' work. And I, yeah. I had no idea. Like, I'd gone in cold and I was like, no one's going to want it. You know, everyone must be making westerns. And it turned out, you know, no, at that point, no one in the UK was writing westerns and they weren't writing sort of feminist, dystopian, futuristic <laughs> sci-fi westerns. So, like, it, it made me realise that, that I was working in a creative space that people were interested in. Though also what I have learned is that when people are interested because you're doing something that feels original to them, it's also a challenge because then it's quite hard for them to see where they position you. And through that, it sort of, I think I had an agent who had, a junior agent who sort of was interested, but then I'd been recommended through someone I did my master's with, uh, a friend of theirs who was a, an agent, and I'd met with her and she read The Competitors and I got that agent. And then she, this is Tanya Tillett, who I'm still with at the agency. And then she sort of started circulating The Competitors. And Oliver Kassman, who produced at Maud and The Origin, he he read it and loved it and wanted to meet with me. And that's how I got involved in The Origin mm. at sort of early stages. So having spent, you know, over a decade not sharing my work with anyone, when I actually did circulate it, I think probably because I waited until I had a script that I just felt confident in mm. and so it was in a good place and because I had spent so much time on that script and I had been supported in it I actually the trajectory of of my kind of career taking off and, and me becoming a professional writer was quick but it, yeah I mean that said like I say I was confident like I didn't circulate it for two years after I wrote it I wasn't that confident like it is terrifying putting mm. things out there particularly things you really have put your heart and soul into and you just have no idea how people are going to respond I you know I'm really pleased that it went well I, did, I mean like I had rejections as well I circulated it to lots of you know competitions and stuff and didn't get in anywhere and then ended up winning a couple of prizes and not realizing I'd won them until mm. like sometime later and you know and, and so it was um you know there was there were definitely periods where it felt bleak but I was lucky that that didn't last too long. And you referenced obviously writing something you know that was yeah dystopian sci-fi western and on your website or on your agent's website is called Elevated Genre and yeah. I'm wondering if you can just unpack that phrase a little bit and, <laughs> and it's a really stupid phrase, <laughs> but, what, but what does it mean to you and what does it mean to elevate genre you know how how do you function well, within that space I mean maybe maybe it's it's misworded I don't know <laughs> that it's elevated genre I suppose it's that the genre is a heightened drama right. it's it's that it's I mean I think what it is in sort of simple terms is that it's just trying to say this isn't a schlocky genre film mm -hmm. like you're not just going in there for action and violence that for me everything I write is a personal drama mm. you know and I write generally about one central character often two um, interacting quite deeply but but normally from one very sort of 
strong POV. Like, and I write very subjectively from that. You know, we, we, we live with that character. I don't tend to do a lot of like seeing what's happening in other rooms. And what the genre does, I suppose, I mean, I, again, I didn't like deconstruct this before I did it. It's just how I wrote, but it allows you to take the internal world of that character and externalize it through the features of genre i suppose genre is expressionistic it's it's that kind of form and it's heightened and it means that you can actually write about really difficult subject matters in a way that makes it a little bit easier for an audience to become immersed in i mean that being said i think i do also with my work people kind of go oh great you know feminist genre and then they read it and they're like oh it's still quite it's still quite hard but like i'm a great believer that you just have to write what you want to write and that's why it will be good i never sort of thought about the kind of i guess the marketing or, or the sort of savviness of what i was writing i just for me, I loved watching genre films when I was a kid. They're all American. That you know, the classic genres are American. A lot of them are really macho, like the Western or the noir. Mm. I was a British girl, and I wanted to find a space that I could occupy in mm. those forms that represented me and and my world. So it just felt like a very natural thing to write about. And you mentioned having an agent, Tanya. I'm wondering if we can dig into what that relationship is like and what kind of conversations you're having to sort of figure out what you want to do. Tanya's amazing. I had some advice really early on that someone said to me, you know, the agent is in the room instead of you. Mm. So they're representing you and who your agent is you know, you're choosing someone to speak for you. And I think there are different types of agent. And what I would say is that Tanya is someone who likes to build relationships and she is a very kind person and she's also very creative. And so for me, that's really important. It's really important to have someone who isn't sort of aggressive or offensive and who I think is a people person and cares. And she... I think that's how our relationship works. I mean, she, she, like I said, she circulated the competitors and, you know, my relationship with Film 4 began because of that. But equally, you know, through Oliver, Oliver introduced me to a few people and, and some of the producers I work with now are through him. And I think, you know, I've definitely got jobs because of Tanya and, and, and what she's done. But I think equally, you know, agents don't always find the work that as a writer you're doing that yourself as well by you know making relationships with people Mm. and I suppose it's different if I wanted to get like the big studio jobs all the time then maybe that's what my agent would fight for but but for me it's really important to work with people that are like-minded that I get on with you know that they're kind I don't want to be in any toxic spaces you know and, and that it becomes you know creativity should be joyful in its essence and so now mostly I, I work with people I know really well and I really like spending time with but then Tanya also you know she she does read my work when I ask her to and is really good like she's really good at feedback in some ways I suppose she's it, it feels like a friendship and that that's the support I get from her right now like we definitely have talked about a game plan for the next stage like when the origin comes out and things like that but mm. I also you know like I'm a single parent I've got quite a lot of work, writing work on I'm I'm developing as a director I'm not in a place where I want to go asking everyone to send me commissions I you right. know I, I have to be a bit careful so we haven't gone through that process yet of like actually trying to make a big jump in my career or anything 
but I, I also think I'm quite self-contained. Like I like to just get on with stuff on my own and then every now and again, if there's an issue, I'll call her. Or if she's got something she needs to check in with me about, she calls me and it's sort of our relationship takes over like that. And then you referenced directing and kind of moving into that space. And I want to spend some time talking about your short film Run starring Neve Algar, um, which is coming onto the Short of the Week platform soon. And it very much combines this kind of interest that you have in, in, in women and violence. How did the idea spark? And I guess, like, what were you trying to say with that film? It's actually a very difficult subject, isn't it? At mm-hmm. the moment, I, I think I started writing it, I don't know, like three or four years ago. And... Then in the last year, you know, we we definitely pretty much wrapped up when Sarah Everard was killed. And, you know, obviously the film is born out of all of our experiences as women. Of being under threat in public spaces is something that has always existed. Like it's not just in this moment where it's it's become a very heightened thing. And I had wanted to write a film that tapped into female experience. And so, you know, for me as someone who loves to make things that are really subjective, and I think actually, you know, I say I'm, I was doing it with Run, it's, it's kind of the subject of a lot of my films is about women's relationships to violence, you know, as victims and the toxicity of violence and how that can then uh, sort of turn them into perpetrators in some ways. But also I wanted to make a film that women could watch and see themselves in and know like that that's how we all feel i think Mm -hmm. i wanted to make a film for women and actually not just women for like i think any marginalized person because every marginalized person knows what it feels like to be afraid in a public space and so yeah i think a lot of the feedback i get about it is that the things that resonate with people are like the little the little tricks like you know turning off the music or the the key that that every woman does you know we know that that's a that's a sort of unspoken kind of um survival mechanism we have and i think secondary to that i was like hopeful that perhaps i would also be making a film that people who don't know what it feels like that uh, when it what it feels like to be to be frightened mm. out and about you know because it's a subjective film that it gives them an opportunity to step into our shoes and to, to know what that feels like so primarily it was for me it was it was about making women feel seen and addressing not just our fear but but our anger mm. you know i th- that's what the heightened moment is about for me it's it's about the rage at, at having to live like this yeah i mean that was the intention and then i think basically the last year it's just been it's been magnified well it's been awful i mean it's very hard to like the film was always real to me we all took it very seriously on set we took you know the attack scene very seriously you know nothing was done unthinkingly and I think some of the people involved you know were particularly close to the subject but I think since then you know every time a woman is killed you look at it and you think you know I'm this is representing the last moments of some people's lives that how it does actually play out however you've dealt with it or whatever your intentions were that's just a very very difficult thing to to recognize um so it's a it's tough it's a you know it people say it's timely and i think for me there was a massive catharsis in making it and i know for some women there'll be a catharsis in watching it but 
I also know that it will be incredibly triggering for some people and that it's unwatchable for some people. And mm-hmm. I think it's really important to respect that and acknowledge it and, and to flag it so that, you know, people don't don't stray into a place that they can't sit in at the moment. And so how did you come to direct it? Was it always the intention that this would be your first kind of directorial outing? I didn't have any experience of industry and so I'd sort of worked out how to write screenplays my own way. But I didn't know what, you know, I, I knew Andrew, the director on The Origin, but I didn't, beyond the development stage, when it goes past the script, like, I just didn't know what directors do. And I think I felt like, I just didn't really feel like that. I really identified as a writer. So I was a bit like, oh, no, I don't think I want to do that. And then Philip had talked to me about a short, like maybe making a short. And I was like, I don't write shorts. I don't know how, to, I don't, you know, it's a different form. I know mm. nothing about it. And then I went away and I had an idea that night. And the next day I was like, okay, I've got a short. I'm, wow. I want to do it. And then I actually, that was a different idea. And then I came up with the idea for Run. I came up with it, I think, probably on a run. <laughs> and, you know, I'm really visual in the way I create. And so it does tend to be... Like for me, running down a track, like those sort of tunnel-like tracks with the trees. And I think I remember I was I was somewhere away from home and I was running through fields and seeing in the distance this like kind of crops of trees and there was something in it, like a shape, and I couldn't work it. And I was looking at it and I no one was around and I was sort of already on edge because you just are in those situations. Mm. And then this shape suddenly moved and I realised it was a person oh, and God. it scared the shit out of me and I think that you know I spend all my life thinking about moments that I've experienced and how would you how would you represent that in a film like how does that come through how do we and not not the visual how do you get the emotion the kind of impact of that experience Mm -hmm. through a visual and through sound so off the back of that I started coming up with the idea for the script which I then pitched film for they liked i wrote it up they liked it it then took quite a while to get it funded because we needed some um help from bfi i it wasn't until you know after all of that that i got ivana mckinnon and mm. helen gladders involved so i sort of did it the wrong way around and i think if i got them involved first it would have all been a lot faster but i had no idea about like financing and, and stuff like that so you know i was really really lucky like you know most people don't have that opportunity and it's slightly embarrassing that I shied away from it but what I've learned now is that it directing is just an extension of my writing process it's all the same thing to me a lot of what I did to prep for the film I already do as a writer and never felt out of my depth creatively in terms of what I wanted it to be you know the things that I'm learning are technical things but I'm fascinated by that because it's so interesting to think how we you know the things that I have in my head how can we capture that and what I also learned is that directing is just like way more fun than writing <laughs> because it's so collaborative yeah. and you know I have to write writing for me is a sort of survival tool it's a therapy I'm always going to do it but I think that directing feels I mean it's really hard directing and the responsibility is terrifying but it's also it's such a joy and it's such a lovely way to bring something that you've kept inside you to a group of people and and get them all invested and bringing themselves into it as well and Mm. I've just I, I loved every minute of that 
I'd like to dig into the prep that you did a little bit more and, and think about perhaps the tangible things you did in the, the lead up to the shoot, because I know you've only been speaking 20 minutes, but you strike me as someone that likes research and that kind of does come prepared. <laughs> so what were you doing to sort of gear yourself up to direct? Well, it's just a, it's just so that I'm not feeling like I'm going to die of panic. I mean, <laughs> isn't that like, you know, it's, it's that human need to have control and not live in chaos. Like mm. I met Molly and Molly said when I met her I really liked prep and I'd already seen her her sorry this is Molly Manning Walker the DP I'd already seen her work before I met her and I knew that I really it just pinged in a way that like you look at lots of stuff and you know it looks good but then with her work I just I was like this is amazing like this is hitting me right in my chest and as soon as she said that about prepping I was just like I have to I have to work with this person and she was really passionate about, you know, she seemed really keen. And I remember as well, like she was, she'd made Good Thanks You at that stage. Right. But she she sort of sidestepped it a little bit. And then I kind of probed and then it came up that she had directed. And, and I remember like afterwards, you know, when we got to know each other better, asking her why she'd been, uh, hadn't wanted to say it. And she said, oh, you know sometimes directors don't want to know that that I direct as well and just being like you know never like you know you've got to do what you want to do and people just need to support you in that and like it these two things can stand together Uh, when she was working as a DP with me she's brilliant at, at you know being there and being creative and being supportive but I never ever would have felt like she was bringing her director's head to it and I think that's what I have to navigate as well as a writer you know dealing with the fact that some directors know that I've directed as well and that that can make them feel uncomfortable but for me it's just a different space you go into a project with a an idea of what this is this is what I'm here to do and there are boundaries almost like invisible boundaries that you then create in your head about how how far you're prepared to take your thoughts about it mm. uh, I guess that's how it works but yeah then sorry to answer your question then <laughs> then Molly had also said in that meeting that she likes to film things on an iPhone like the whole thing before right. we actually shoot it and I was like oh yes so we basically just had like she was incredible we had like three weeks where like I'm I'm obsessed with locations so I'd already worked out all the locations I wanted and you know was constantly being told that they were unlikely to be available and I was constantly sort of standing there looking like we keep trying you know I, I, I wasn't prepared to sort of like give up on them we went to the locations I think she she filmed I basically stood in for the runner and we filmed the whole thing right and then we edited it together and we worked out what the shots we wanted and what sort of the vape through the edit were basically what, what what shots we needed and we made a shot list and then we you know cut it down and cut it down and then sort of going in on the day we had a shot list that was absolute like we need all of this and then maybe there are like two or three shots that we put at the very end of the day that we didn't tell anyone we could maybe live without but Mm. if we had to lose them they were the ones that would go and then when I went into edit with Stella Heathcare the the editor you know the film you know there are things that have changed a little but pretty much that's the structure it's we, we we stuck to it and and we had a few excess shots in the end that we didn't need because you know we worked out a more home style but you know we used most of what we got in the way we expected to use it and I think that's really been something that I've you know has been quite distinct for me is that the film I had in my head is the film that you're watching at the end like Mm. it hasn't changed 
I mean, I, I can see how it wouldn't always work like that, but I do feel like I tend to have a very strong sense of what it is that I'm looking to, to make. Um, and having someone like Molly involved made, meant it was really easy to plan for that. So I think it's all about prep. It's all about the planning. And like, you know, obviously we, we shared comps and we, you know, looked at lots of images and I was sort of trying to explain it to, to Molly. And, and I remember it being a shot from Mean Streets where they have a snorry cam and mm. he's walking around, he's drunk and it's that sort of. So we went and we had a look at one of these snorry cams, but um, they're unbelievably huge and cumbersome and take ages to rig and I was just like no we can't like we just don't it's too stressful it's too big a deal it's going to take over and then actually in the end Molly and her grip Pete came up with an idea a really simple idea of putting a couple bars on the front of the camera for Neve to hold on to and spinning together and it just worked you know and it was much more organic and sort of I think you know fit the style so much better anyway so that that sort of thing was that was our collaborating together because we really understood through our prep what it was we were wanting to achieve well you literally had the film in your back pocket in some senses to kind of refer to but then also spin out from um Mm. well we didn't we didn't spin out (laughs) that's the (laughs) thing I know lots of people do or they you know we recut the whole film and edit and it became something and it's like I was just like no that's you know I don't have enough another film in here like this is what it is and I also read that you created some rules for the camera setups and I'm wondering if you can expand on what they were and why you implemented them. I mean, it wasn't in a bad way. I no, wasn't no, like, no. these are my rules. <laughs> you have to follow my rules. It was like, hey, let's have some rules. And I think because it, when you have rules, it creates a mood and there's a meaning to them which in itself is really important. But then what it gives you is when you break them, it gives you a very strong sort of statement Mm. it does something so one of the rules was that when she's moving we're moving so that was I guess about the subjectivity about wanting to feel that we were with her at all points um and it was also about wanting to try and create because you know this film doesn't have you know it's her as a character and then this other sort of character we don't see properly and and there's no dialogue and you know it it needed to be driven by a sort of kinetic energy that I you know we created through her movement I also like I said with the tunnel of trees and like you go through the underpasses and there was you know every location that had been chosen was done because it it created a tunnel it was like a funneling effect Mm. so it was all feeding into this idea that there was an an inevitability to her you know her journey like that she couldn't get off the path that she was on you know that was technically tricky because it meant we in the end we got this rickshaw which was brilliant and sort of saved us but it you know running neva's quite a fast runner she's a good <laughs> runner so you know keeping up and carrying a camera originally we were going to have a steady cam on a rickshaw which would have been a nightmare but we ended up having a ronin and and it was you know you have to deal again with some glitchiness because it's a robot but it actually it was brilliant and it had the the great a great effect yeah it just meant for me that was about us being with her at all times and close to her I think we were staying close and that that really fed into the subjectivity but then every now and again we have shots where we're locked off and at a distance and she's running either towards us like the one where she comes under the bridge or the the big wide where she comes down the hill and so there because you're breaking the rule and you're doing it in quite a sort of stark way it creates an effect It, it sort of you know I think the whole film is built around this woman who's trying to do something 
and it's being interrupted. And so we constantly were working with disruption, like the edit is slightly disruptive, it's jarring, the, mm. the way we cut the music is jarring. And so you get into your stride and then you get your stride broken. And so these sort of wides, these sort of still wides, I guess, um, were part of that, like suddenly just taking you back from her. But what it also does is it provides a shot that shows her isolation in the space and her being alone or alone with another person. And I think for me, what I find really interesting is that if you've been immersed in someone's subjectivity and then you're suddenly at a great distance from them, you get to watch how they are putting on a mask. So the shot where she's running towards us, if we hadn't had everything that had gone before, it would just look like a woman with a kind of fairly blank face on a run, running towards us, coming under a bridge. But because we know what her internal state is, we're seeing what women do every day, mm-hmm. which is pretend nothing's wrong. And that trying to, to see that sort of, I guess, the shell or the facade or whatever that women do. And then as she gets close to us, suddenly we hear her breath again, like, you know, the soundscape of her internal sounds. And we, we remember exactly how she's feeling, but she's pretending not to. Totally. It sounds quite glib, but that's like the power of cinema. And I remember feeling this like watching it at the time, but hearing you like talk about it has like kind of reminded me because there's very little dialogue, as as you say, it's like she's on a run and, you know, you're not talking to yourself. But as you say, like creating the soundscape and all the things that you're doing with the camera. Yeah, it's such a visual medium and it felt like it could only be brought to life in that medium. You know, even if you do make films about people talking, you know, it's never about what they're saying. It's about what they're not saying. And so you can't just spell out a story through dialogue. You've got to be able to tell a story through everything else that film is about. I'm wondering if the experience of directing for the first time has taught you anything that you are going to kind of bring forward into your future projects or taught you something about yourself that you're like, oh, I'm never going to do that again. That I loved it, that I really loved it and that it brought me great joy, that it was also terrifying and I had to find a way to, it was actually fine once once we started in dream prep, but there was just like a week before we went in where I was like, what am I doing? Why have I set myself up for this? It's, it's so stressful. Knowing that the way to manage that is through being prepared, feeling as prepared as possible. I think what I also know is that I'm fascinated by the technical side and about trying to find ways that you use the technical side of directing of cameras to to express internal landscapes, but that that's incredibly time consuming when you get really drawn into the technical and that you mustn't forget that fundamentally the the greatest thing you have is this actor and their face and what they do <laughs> and that you you know stick with the emotion I mean that's what Stella the, the editor sort of said as advice before I went in she said if you're if there's a point where you don't know what you're doing just remember stay with the emotion that's what mm. you're there for yeah my biggest fear as a director is not having enough time to get what I'm trying to get like that's the thing that I feel stressed about all the time and I think you can you can deal with that by planning but also by understanding really that what you're wanting to get isn't just this shot that represents this and this shot, but actually you're, you're wanting to get the emotional beat and that there are always simpler ways to achieve that. I also want to talk about the origin, um, which you spoke about earlier, um, and I think just wrapped production last year. And as you say, it's being produced by Oliver Kassman, who did St. Maud. So um, yeah, cool people involved. Um, It's set in the Stone Age as well. Um, So I'm really intrigued as to why that was an era that interested you and also like how you go about 
researching an era that is so long ago. Well, it wasn't. I'm. It was interested Oliver and the director Andrew Cumming who mm. brought it to me. And they're both basically really geeky. And they <laughs> wanted to make a prehistoric horror film, but then what? What actually, I guess, resonated for me is off the back of the competitors is that you know I really love world building and I love landscape, like remote, kind of brutal landscapes. Mm. And this was another opportunity to write a film set in the kind of wilds of the UK. Yeah, in terms of of researching, we did we have, you know, like we have a a guy called Rob Dinnis who's our advisor, who's our kind of prehistoric advisor. Is that I don't think that's his title. And he's he's amazing and so he, you know, he came in once we had like a draft in place and but you know, we'd that there is a couple of books about the the stone age that we've read and but I think for me, yes, I do I do research a lot. But for me, research again, it's about place. Place is such a good, a good way to start. And so I, I struggle because like sometimes I get commissioned to write things that are in, you know, America or whatever. And I'm mm. like, it's, it's so hard to really put yourself into a story if you're not occupying the space or you can't imagine yourself occupying the space. So what I did really early on, once we'd sort of got the treatment together like um oliver and andrew had had created an outline and off the back of that it sort of the characters were all like a b c d e mm. i could come in and said right well this is what we need to do in terms of you know making it into a story by the characters and and i developed the treatment and we'd taken that into film four and they had i think would just had just told us that they were wanted us to go straight from the treatment that we showed them they wanted us to do a draft on the script just before we went on a recce which is basically what I'd said <laughs> in this sort of slightly sort of innocent time where I was like I can't write a script until I've been to the place <laughs> so um we the three of us went and spent five days driving around Scotland oh, wow. um and looking at landscapes that were the landscapes that we wanted because the film is very much set into three acts and there's sort of the exposure of the tundra there's the claustrophobia of the forests and then there's the final act which takes place in caves and so we we wanted to sort of see these spaces in Scotland which is where Andrew's from and where we wanted to set it and film it it was amazing I mean like and and we did some really like we went and stayed in a body by a lock and sort of you know and did treks through forests and up mountains and I probably you know nearly died one day when we went and got lost and missed up a mountain which turned into a scene in the script and you know it was but it meant you know it was so great creatively we just talked and talked and talked about the story and about what we wanted to do and it meant that when I came back I wrote the draft I think in about eight days just really fast and it was a real like purge that draft because I just had everything inside me ready to come out Mm -hmm. And, you know, we did lots of work on it and it changed a lot. But I think in some ways that first draft was probably quite a special first draft. And it meant whenever we talked about it afterwards, whether we were in development or when we went into prep or whatever, we all knew that we had the same film in our heads, Mm -hmm. like that we knew exactly what these places looked like and how these people were living in them. And it means that, you know, when I got to finally watch Andrew take over and direct, I just could sit back and feel really safe that, he, we have this, I hate the word, but this shared vision. This is maybe a slightly basic or too broad question, but let's see where we go with it. And that's kind of how do you write horror? And I guess what I mean, <laughs> I guess what I mean by that is that it feels to me as I'm not a horror expert by any um, stretch of the imagination, well, but it neither feels am I, actually <laughs> strangely. But it feels to me from what I have seen that it is a genre that has 
traps, booby traps, yeah. if you will. Um, but, you know, one that feels perhaps particularly ripe for cliche or where scares can kind of feel shoehorned in because that is what horror is meant to do rather than earned because that's where the story has taken you. So I'm wondering what you feel the key is to kind of originality or, or authenticity or to kind of earning the the horrorness of the genre. Well, I think I think I think many things. One, I yeah, I don't know how you write horror. Like, <laughs> don't ask me. Two, I you know, me, Andrew, and Oliver, ni- none of us were horror heads. Like, it was a new space for us, which made it really interesting and has probably been difficult at times. But we watched a lot of films. Again, that's my first thing: is just watch lots of films and sort of absorb them. Don't you know? You can deconstruct them, or whatever, but also just absorb them and absorb. Like, I, I think in terms of structure and stuff like that that's just how I've learned about structures it just has I've, I've sort of I've built an innate sense of it but I think the key is I would say it's for anything is that you're just you start with character like for me horror nothing's more horrifying than humanity <laughs> to be honest um and like the point of horror is to externalize an internal monster that's what we wanted to do and so if you are always on character and thinking about what this story is about and who this person is and why you know what are we doing in terms of her story or his story then if you're exploring people doing horrendous things or you know really difficult like nasty parts of human nature it's going to be horrifying and then there are all like you say the tropes and the tricks but like Andrew's really good on this. Like he was just like, oh, there are not going to be any jump scares in this film mm. that aren't integral to the story. Like we don't just have a random like, or uh, you know, something jumps out and it's nothing. Yeah. If 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 anything like that happens, it has to be organic to what we're doing. And what I would also say is, I'm not a believer in genre as an absolute i think that you know again it's part of our our striving as humans to to categorize in order to try and like push back chaos but like all genres are to some extent hybrid and i think one of the things that i really love and that oliver and andrew and i share as filmmakers is this love of uh, the kind of hybrid of a a heightened genre with uh, what is essentially a personal drama if i write any genre like you know horror was isn't my first genre like the origin was the first horror i wrote i've written more since then Mm. but i tend to be it's it's like the western or it's a noir or but really my genre is action like like I grew up watching you know Arnold Schwarzenegger like that's that's my and and you know even with the westerns like John Wayne whatever it's it's all about action and so I think a lot of my scripts they are horrors but they're quite action driven that I I I think my writing I often get told my writing is quite muscular and I suppose in in run you can see that as well that it's like you know some people might call it a drama some people might call it a thriller i've had someone say that it was like a slasher film Mm. and i see it again as action because it's about kinetic energy it's about movement and about her physically moving and escaping and doing i want to talk a little bit about the action of writing and and what a writing day might look like for you particularly (laughs) if you're in kind of like the thicket of a script you know do you have a set routine that you stick to or it's sort of very much about writing as and when you feel like that that's a possibility if i am in the thicket of the script i like the sound of that um (laughs) then it's everything becomes about just sitting down and writing so Mm. you would if you came into a room or where i live in that time 
you would there would be a lot of mess. <laughs> like I, I, I give myself complete pass on all other things beyond keeping my daughter alive. <laughs> the only thing I can remember to pick her up and feed her. Yeah, I just everything else because because you just have to sit and do it. And there are always other things that will get in the way. So I t- kind of sign off. I stop tidying. I stop cooking. I stop <laughs> exercising. You know, I just write. And I think that's actually a really good space. It's, but it's it, it's also quite unusual to be like right in there with like, because there's so many other parts of writing mm. that, um, you know, in terms of... The pre-thicket. Yeah, pre-thicket and, and post-thicket and <laughs> doing your tax return and whatever else. <laughs> but it's, I think what I would say actually though, in terms of like, if I... I'm allowed to give advice, I don't know, advice, thoughts, whatever, Mm -hmm. on this subject. I think there's a real problem with people who dictate what a writing day should be. And I think I spent many, many years feeling like I wasn't a writer because I didn't get up at seven in the morning, have a coffee and a cigarette, write till (laughs) 10 at night, have a whiskey and go to bed. And, And what I would say is the people who tell you that if you're a writer you will write for 12 hours a day and you will probably majority men who don't have a lot of responsibilities like my world just doesn't work like that and and my writing sort of day has adapted over the years to what I have to adapt it to in my personal life you know I'm a single parent I I want to spend a lot of time with my child and it means that when I am at my desk I've got loads better at like sitting in a cafe and being I can write a script in a cafe now I never used to be able to do that what I can't do is write when people I know are around so if my (laughs) daughter's around or I've got friends or family around I just can't get into the space so I have to I have to be somewhere away from known people but I I can write very productively in short periods of time it's just always adapted to to the responsibilities I have. And I think no one should ever feel like the way they do it is wrong. You've got to do it the way you do it. Exactly. I think I've read it in another context where it's like writing doesn't just happen on the page. Like, as you say, it's, it's all the things that happen before you arrive at the page and the thinking that you do as well. Yeah. And it's difficult because it does also mean that there is an issue with boundaries. So like, you know, mm. I say that I stop and I go and hang out with my kid, but like, I don't necessarily shut down my brain mm. when that happens or go into the mum brain. I'm I'm still, you know, so it, it can be problematic because it means you don't ever stop and that is, I think sometimes you do need to make space to stop because otherwise you burn out. Mm. I, I want to touch briefly on rejection just because I feel like that is something that writers just have to deal with. It's part and parcel of the process and, and the career of being a writer. So I'm wondering if you've ever written something that hasn't got made. I guess the competitors in some way, but maybe that's not a great example because it did kind of give you a platform upon which to do yeah. other things but how do you move on I guess from things that don't work out in the way that you intended for them to I suppose what has helped is having more than one project so you're not the be all and end all because when I write something it's like mm. everything and so if you're writing on something else as well you just can just take some of the edge off the feelings of awful <laughs> when when something doesn't go the way you want it to but I think also I mean you know it's something I'm still learning but I think it's my work is often very close to me or comes from a very internal place and I think I've learned there are some projects that I need to be a little bit more careful with that I need to maybe keep a little bit of distance you know not make it quite so 
so born out of my own sort of emotions because mm. you know whether those are projects that are it's more likely a, it's more of a gun for hire thing and I you know I could get fired easily or whatever I haven't as yet found out whether when I write those they're as good as the ones where I put everything <laughs> into it so I mean that's something in years to come I might I might discover that actually those ones are, are completely fine and some of the ones that I put my heart and soul into aren't that good you know and, and that will be a learning curve but I think also there is this whole thing of recognizing that I think it depends what kind of writer you are like I you know you are not your work and your work is not you apparently <laughs> it doesn't always feel like that and I think then understanding that when your work is rejected maybe it's because there's something wrong with it or it's not good enough and always being able to take the note and take you know and think about the criticism you receive and think about because things can always be worked on but I think also having a really strong understanding that particularly in this industry there are two other things at play and one is politics like you have no idea why Mm. something has not worked out and it's often nothing to do with the quality of the project and the other thing is taste and that people just have different tastes and like as a writer I see that quite clearly that that I have people who really love the way I write and that feels great I have people who really don't like the way I write because it's the it's not screenwriting or whatever and you know in terms of my subject matter like I make a lot of quite dark stuff um the the kind of using drama and genre but you know maybe for some people that's confusing because it doesn't always adhere to expectations of either so it puts a lot of people off and just understanding well that's fine you know not everybody likes the same stuff and it doesn't necessarily reflect on the quality of what I'm doing We'd love to know, finally, what is a film from a woman director that you think is a bit of a hidden gem or something that you just return to, think about often? Well, it's not a hidden gem anymore. But back when I saw it, it was, I think, Red Road by Andrew Arnold is a film that I love for many reasons. Partly because it's one of those films that has an image in it that will stay with me till I die. I mean, when you talk about an image that that creates an emotion in your Mm. core like an undeniable emotion she's an amazing filmmaker I also I also love her because I've watched that film and as I watched it I had this really strange sense of deja vu like I'd seen it before but I knew I hadn't Mm. and then I realized at some point that I'd I'd written a script report on it when I did like a a year of doing script reports at what was the UK Film Council and I went and looked it up and it was a development report I'd I'd been sort of glowing about it and it was just really affirming for me Mm. knowing that I got that right it's an incredible film I've also I'm working with an amazing director called Nora Fringscheid who is Mm. a German director she's she's got background in docs and she's just had a film that she made with Netflix which is like a big Sandra Bullock film released um, called The Unforgivable but her first feature which she wrote and directed is called System Crasher and it's a German language film and it's absolutely brilliant and I'd really recommend that and also Nora is you know she's a very lovely person but also just an incredible creative so have you got one that you can recommend to me though because I feel like I you know I found it I was worried how hard I found it to answer that question Ooh, I'm gonna recommend First Match which is on Netflix and it's by a director called her name's Olivia I want to say Newman okay um and it's about uh 
a young teenage girl who likes to wrestle uh, and she's on an all boys wrestling team and then it's also about like this relationship with her father who I think has just gotten out of prison and she's kind of like wrestling to impress him and um, this sounds yeah it's very good and I also think you'll love the camera I think I want to say it's Ashley Connor who did the cinematography who's brilliant and she did um like Miss Education of Cameron Post and stuff but it's like very again I would say like muscular in the movement and the way it sort of matches her movements as a wrestler um but also like breath and how she's feeling and it's very sensual as well fantastic oh Um, thanks that sounds brilliant I'm gonna watch it Ruth it's been such a joy speaking with you I've really enjoyed um yeah spending time with you today so thank you so much for coming on Best Girl Grip Thank you very much for inviting me and I've really enjoyed talking to you. I feel like I did most of the talking, but I I really liked it when you spoke. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Best Girl Grip. If you liked what you heard, please do rate, review and subscribe. It really does help to get the word out. If this is your first time listening, there's a whole bunch of episodes to keep you busy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Acast. But if you're up to date, hold tight and I'll be back next Tuesday with a brand new episode. (laughs) 